This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Okay, I take that as my cue. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to the final session at DC 17. Uh, this is, uh, I'd like to start by thanking Film Victoria, who helped make the session happen, and Alice and her team for making it a seamless process. Um, uh, if you don't know where you are right now, I'll tell you, this is Northern Exposure, how AR and VR producers can enter the local market. Uh, for the next hour, myself and my fellow panellists will be exploring this topic and hope to impart some of our key learnings through our own experience. Learnings we hope will help you to source funding for your own VR projects or AR, plus navigate the brave new world, which is rapidly transforming. Uh, on my right, I'm joined by Katie Morrison, uh, co-founder of Vertov, an award-winning virtual reality production studio whose work has been featured at Sundance, Tribeca, Sheffield, IDFA, MIF, Toronto, and elsewhere. Uh, recently, Katie produced the virtual reality experiences The Turning Forest and East of Easter Rising, Voice of a Rebel. Uh, both for the BBC, and is currently working on projects with the NFB Canada and the National Theatre UK, among others. Before working in VR, Katie worked in factual TV production. So she's gone to the other side, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the new side. <laughs> and on her right is Melanie Hawken, producer at Fathom Film Group. With over 15 years' experience in the interactive industry, Melanie co-produced and wrote My Enemy, My Brother, which was shortlisted for an Academy Award in 2015 and nominated for a news and documentary Emmy. She's currently producing a VR experience based on My Enemy, My Brother in association with Ink Stories in New York. Was also associate producer and interactive producer on Google and The World Brain. Um, I'm a fellow panellist and would-be moderator. My name's Leo Faber. I'm co-founder of of VR content collective Bad Faith. Uh, I'm an executive producer with 20 years experience producing for Factual TV. I've been producing VR content for just under two years. Uh, first with Australian company Pixelcase VR, and now with my own company Bad Faith, which I founded with the contemporary artist Sean Gladwell. Our work Orbital Vanitas just premiered at Sundance in January, and we're now in pre-production uh, with Screen Australia and SBS on an Australian-funded f- uh, f- VR documentary called Storm Rider. Uh, and also, I'm head of content for Red Bull Australia, which is completely unrelated. <laughs> That's my day job, but re- VR is the passion. Um, we were asked to bring some short AV materials just to sort of illustrate our work so far. So um, I'm up first for some reason, uh, and this is a preview or trailer for uh, our, our recent work, Orbital Vanitas, which was directed by Sean Gladwell. We have the lights, please. And next up we have some, uh, so some stills from uh, Melanie's work at Fathom Films for her work, uh, which was part of the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. yeah. which we'll talk about later, no doubt. And for Katie, we have, do you want to click to Do you the, want me to speak, speak to these? Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Katie. I'm the producer of um, Vertov. We are a studio based here in Melbourne, and um, we've been making VR since 2013, uh, which... I always say feels like an absolute age ago <laughs> to, um, when you consider how things have changed from then till now. Um, 
We uh, first launched our company with the piece of scent, which Oscar spoke to in the previous panel, um, which you'll see up there in the, the top corner. Um, that was a piece that really kind of was quite successful for us on the festival circuit and um, enabled us to really formalise our company. Um, we went on to produce a couple of pieces for the BBC, Mister um, Rising, Voice of a Rebel, which was their first big VR commission, which came out of the learning department, which was fantastic. We um, we started that in 2015, and uh, in 2016 we're invited to co-produce uh, with their research and development department the VR fairy tale, The Turning Forest, which is the one that you can see up there, which is a VR, um, which is a fiction piece. I will just show you the trailer of um, of Easterizing Voice of a Rebel because that's a documentary and we're at a documentary conference. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, do you want to play the trailer? And, yes, that voice you heard was Sir Davos from Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> Career highlight. <laughs> Jealous. Okay. And um, so, so that's a bit of Katie's background leading to the VR. What about yourself, Melanie? So I started working with Fathom Film Group uh, back in 2012. We had a film called The Defector. And with all of our projects we, um, we do feature documentaries. And then because of the setup in Canada, there's lots of great funds available to then do um, kind of what they call a legacy interactive piece. Um, so with The Defector, we did an experiential piece putting you in the point of view of The Defector. Um, more recently, My Enemy, My Brother started off as a short film. Um, it was a chance meeting with someone who'd done um, a radio interview with the two protagonists. And I remember getting goosebumps and I said, we've got to make, you know, a film. And um, so the film did pretty well and we were at Tribeca last year and um, met up with um, Lokda from the National Film Board of Canada and he put us in touch with Navid, who I think is in the audience. Um, and we, what we did as a starting point was we, we sort of looked at the themes of the film and, and thought about how they could be realised in, 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 in an interactive space and sort of came to the conclusion that VR was the best place for that. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Uh, and just to conclude, the sort of uh, the, our background and why we, what brings us to be in front of you guys today, um, I was working at Essential Media um, as head of development, head of factual development, and uh, I tried VR for the first time uh, a couple of years ago uh, with JP Marin SBS, and just completely fell in love with it. Um, in fact, it's such an honour for me to be sitting here nerding out with fellow people that are interested in VR because uh, my wife is sick of hearing me talk about it. To be honest, <laughs> so uh, you guys can't leave, or well, you can if you want. To. Anyway, um, please don't. Yeah, please don't. Uh, so I, I basically started working with a company called Pixel Case, doing mainly sort of commercial work, uh, working with ad agencies, branded uh, VR, and learned a lot uh, in that in time for about eight months. Um, but I had a penny drop moment uh, when I was showing VR for the first time to my uh, best friend. And uh, when uh, I realised when I was curating his first experience in VR, um, I was showing him other people's work and not my own. I thought, why aren't I proud of as much of the stuff I'm doing? realised I didn't have that level of uh, authorship that I, I really felt was, was what I wanted. So I uh, reached out to uh, Sean Gladwell, uh, the contemporary artist, and, and uh, was lucky enough. I'd never met him before, but he was interested in VR, hadn't tried it. Uh, put the headset on him and uh, con converted him, uh, as, as was I. And uh, he and I, a couple, um, a couple of days later, made our first VR film together. And, you know, I, I heard in the previous... Uh, previous session Oscar mentioned you know just go out and do it you know this idea of just going out and trying to make it and learn as you go and and that was certainly our, our experience and it was uh it was an amazing experience uh, being able to just just make something you know and just that freedom it felt like a jam and it was something we wanted to do again and so we decided to to 
uh, pull together and, and pull our resources and our, and our uh, contact list. And, and uh, we've now formed what we call a, a content collective with Bad Faith. And we've got nine individuals uh, who are part of it, including um, film, filmmakers and um, scientists and, and, uh, and documentary makers like Emil Court Wilson, Lucy Schroeder, Natasha Pincus. Uh, Dr. Jordan Nguyen. Um, so we've got, there's a few of us and, and we're just really excited about pushing the boundaries. Um, okay, so so that's a little bit about us. Let's get to some specifics. Um, Mel, of course every project is different, but can you just talk us through how, how it all starts from your experience? What sort of process or processes uh, have you undergone to turn what is an idea or a brief mm-hmm. into an actual work people can experience? I always find that um, going to some of the interactive markets like Sheffield's or Hot Docs are a great way to start because um, a lot of them have kind of incubated labs. So with my enemy and my brother, actually back in 2013, um, we were accepted into uh, Hot Hacks, which was a a hacking, what they call it, like a two-day weekend workshop where we were put together with uh, this really great company called Secret Location. And we just started with kind of big sheets of paper and pens and it was like, just lay, you know, we picked apart our film idea. So some of the themes that we wanted to explore, such as uh, racial profiling, um, and uh, and then thought what the best way um, to realise that in an interactive space would be. So it may, may not necessarily have ended up being a VR project, but because um, we were interested in, in that particular technology as being like um, a way of experiencing empathy in a very kind of full-bodied way, I suppose. Um, that was where we, we kind of started. Um, so through that collaboration with Secret Location, we then got funding to do a web series. So the web series um, was... Um, so in My Enemy, My Brother, it's a story of two enemy soldiers who meet during the Iran-Iraq war. And uh, the boy soldier decides um, at great risk to his own life to save the enemy soldier. And then they meet 20 years later, ruining the ending. <laughs> um, and we we had got funding to do a feature version of that. And the feature involved bringing both of those characters back. So um, in order to engage the audience, we decided to do an interactive web series, which was kind of a transparent look at our process as well and some of the moral dilemmas that we faced opening this Pandora's box as well in our kind of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just... Things kept coming from that process, which led us to then um, work with Navid and Ink Stories. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you know, every project's different. If it's TV, film, VR is no different. What about you, Katie? Um, have you got any specific experiences you can share with us in terms of uh, how you kicked off a project or how it became, you know, a VR project that you're actually going to make? Mm. Well, we are a studio that only does virtual reality. So um, the projects that we have taken on in the past um, couple of years have been, we've kind of looked for stories that we think will suit the medium first, right? Or stories have come to us and we've been like, this will be a great story for this particular platform. Um, Easter Rising Voice of a Rebel was one of those stories which appealed to us, um, I think, because it's essentially a memory-based, um, a memory-based story. The, the kind of the, the context around that piece is that um, it was originally a cassette recording of um, a guy who had put, put his memories down when he was a really old man. He was in his 70s um, and he was recalling for basically for his kids and their kids his time as a participant, a rebel participant in the 1916 Easter uprising. Um, that tape, funnily enough, got um, got passed to one of our colleagues who we knew from Sheffield Dockfest's market mm-hmm. days. So, yes, the, the industry does kind of revolve around these sort of hubs, mm-hmm. um, who said to us, you know, 
we've, this piece of archival audio has just come to light. Um, I think it would make a great VR experience. And we listened to it and we said, yeah, it would make a great VR experience. It's just about inhabiting this guy's kind of lossy, fragmented memory of this really, really pivotal event in Irish history. So we pitched that directly to our contacts at the BBC and it was sort of mid-2015 and at that stage they were just really ready to take on something like that. Um, and, and, and kudos to them because, you know, I think it was certain people within the BBC who just were kind of quite forward-looking and able to just go, yes, we want to do this. So it was quite, um, it was quite an organic process. I would say in terms of, like, workflow going from, you know, okay, great, we've got a project, the story seems to suit the platform, um, what are we going to do? Um, I kind of would echo everything that was being said in the previous panel about, about prototyping, about storyboarding and about crafting a strategy for your project. Um, I think I've got some slides of the process. Um, this is some art reference and some key art that we have had made and that was for Easter Rising. Um, so in addition to, in addition to, to, you know, we were lucky. We had a piece that started off with a piece of audio. So we kind of had the narrative framework laid out for us. Of course, you have to go through that and pick out the moments and how you want your user to engage and the interactive points. But the story essentially is on rails. Like it goes from point A to point B to point C and that's not going to change. Um, we, uh, we did a lot of, um, of key art when we were trying to develop the, the framework for this project. So you can see there we've got, um, we've got art reference down the bottom, we've got inspiration, um, we've got concept art which kind of takes bits and pieces of painting from the era and tries to apply that to the art style. All of these decisions that you're making when you're planning out your project then impact on how long it's going to take you how you're going to budget it, all those sorts of things. Um, from that sort of development process, which happens alongside your writing, we went on to the prototyping process, which is the next slide. Um, and that is, I don't know if the GIFs are playing, yeah. So we're just, um, we're looking at key vistas. We actually prototyped out each, um, each scene from the project and looked at the key moments uh, in a grey box sort of style environment. So that's, um, so that's that. I won't take you through the next two slides. I think they are pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, I mean, from my experience coming from a, a TV background, now moving into VR, um, you have to, you know, every day is a new set of challenges that you're having to mm -hmm. overcome mm -hmm. and you do just have to work it out as you go, which is quite exciting. Um, we were talking about it before the panel. There is a lot of collaboration in the VR world at the moment. Um, we'll see if that how that how that continues, but I think it's fantastic, and especially online communities. You know, share a lot of information. People are learning, and we're sharing um, sharing a lot. Uh, just going back a, a step, you know, this idea of um, uh, Melanie's talking about VR work as being an extension of a of a work that you're already making, and it's sort of two D flatty. Uh, style and then uh, Katie talking about work that starts as a VR project. You know, this is certainly where where I've I've, I've seen the opportunities come. But now there is there are more uh, more and more opportunities uh, for broadcasters and platforms to look for uh, that are actually commissioning VR content straight away, and that's it's growing. And we'll touch upon that uh, in a in a second. Um, let's talk about um, let's talk about uh, um, funding 
and festivals because obviously, you know, everything, you know, we can come up with great ideas that we think would make, you know, a great VR project, but it all comes down to being able to, to uh, fund these. With Orbital Vanitas, where it was completely self-funded and, and a very low budget um, just through favours and, and people just being passionate about the, about the, about the project. But now with Stormrider, um, that's, that's got a proper budget um, and it was, uh, you know, and we need it because it's going to take a long time. You've got to start hiring crew, etc. cetera. Um, Katie, what's been your experience so far? Um, with screen agency funding, and do you think it's growing, or are you noticing domestically? Domestically, yeah. In Australia, specifically in Australia, let's start with, and then let's talk about international. Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, I can only speak to what I've observed domestically. We've um, we've been lucky enough to receive development funding from uh, Screen Australia, who um, and Film Victoria, who have both supported um, the project that we're doing with the NFB. Um, I would say that uh, domestically, all the screen agencies seem to be very keen to to support the industry that's obviously they can it's it's growing um there's a lot of people interested in it and i think the screen agencies are really keen to to support that in whatever ways they can um and how did you approach the how do you approach these people did you have existing relationships with them or yeah i mean so because i suppose i have um been involved in the the tv scene and it's not that far the people the same people you're talking to (laughs) so um so yeah but i would say if you weren't if you didn't have existing relationships with the screen bodies, that's that's what they're there to do is to to ha- to talk to you, right? As as creators, so there's nothing to stop you dropping someone an email, and you should be dropping people emails and saying, you know, look, I've got this project in development, um, this is the stage it's at, and this is what I think it would be applicable for, and, and look through their guidelines and look in your doors, look in their doors to um to see where your project might might suit mm. what they are able to fund because they do fund within a set of guidelines. Um, I would say that our Work uh, are projects that we have produced right through to completion um, so far have been funded uh, exclusively overseas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and Mel, on a local level besides great agencies, have you, uh, have you, how have you funded your work out of Australia? I've not really been working in Australia for the last five years. Mm-hmm. So in, in Canada, they've got this kind of great system where a lot of the big telcos like Bell Media um, and Rogers have... Um, these funds that are exclusively for uh, digital projects, mm-hmm. um, so many through that. But I also, working in that space, became aware that there was quite a few funds that Aussies could apply to too, like the Tribeca Fund. And then, as we mentioned before, there's great opportunities at some of these festivals if you get the opportunity to go, like ITFA, Tribeca, Sheffield, mm-hmm. um, which I found just invaluable in terms of collaboration, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and making those kind of contacts. I would totally, totally echo that. I think we would not be in the position that we're in now without having um, been fortunate enough to be able to launch our project, our first project at Sheffield, um, and then go on and be able to be part of all these big markets. They are yeah. where... They are where all the funders are. There's a yeah. lot of money available to you that um, that you might not that might not be visibly apparent, but as soon as you start to have those conversations and make yeah. those connections, yeah. it's there. And um, and the festivals, are, you know, I you don't see a lot of Australians in the interactive markets or the interactive showcases or even just kind of visiting them um, at the festivals. And I would encourage everyone to really consider that as part of their strategy. It's mm. so important. Mm. Yeah. And my, my experience so far has been fairly positive with uh, local screen um, screen agencies. So uh, as mentioned, um, Stormrider was funded by Screen Australia and it was actually the very first ever VR production finance for a documentary. And we, we received that funding through the documentary door. So we were competing against television projects. So we weren't through a special new media or special VR fund or something. So, you know, that to me is, is a sign that the 
the screen agencies are seeing it as a as, as a viable piece of content, not just a platform. Um, I was certainly challenged heavily in the develop uh, in, in the pitch phase with Screen Australia as to why should this be a, a VR work? Why isn't this just a documentary that you can do? Mm. And I think that's really important for everyone to be thinking. You know, you will be challenged in that regard. I think you know people will say, well, why is this? What, what's VR add to this? You know, it's going to be a, a headache. It's going to be a lot more expensive potentially. Mm. Um, you know, what, why does it need to be VR? And, and if you can answer that, you know, as a filmmaker, then, uh, then you know, you're halfway there, I think. Um, but also, uh, you know, f- for festival, um, if you are lucky enough to, to get into a festival, obviously uh, the different screen bodies, we were supported by Screen New South Wales and Screen Australia to, to travel to Sundance um, and be part of that festival too. So, um, you know, local support is there and it's, and it's growing. Um, just have to make a strong case for why. Uh, your work should be should be funded. I think also, I mean, it's it. I I recognise that there's a difficulty in the funding landscape at the moment. Is is that um, quite often people are going up for production funds and they're asking for quite significant amounts. Um, and one of the questions that I think is always sort of is raised about your capability to deliver to to to, to final product, right? Um, I think it's very hard at the moment because there's not a lot of prototyping money around. Um, in the kind of the screen, the screen agency sort of world, and I would say, like, I would that would be one thing I, I would love to see evolve a little bit. I know that um, Tribeca, TFI, um, Sundance as well, they all give certain amounts of money, and we've you know we've got projects that have been supported by those with with not you know with not huge. They're not giving you necessarily your full production budget, but they'll give you a bit of money to do some prototype yeah. work, and I think that just gets you along the way, gets you testing your ideas, gets you testing out your capabilities and who you're going to need to work with. Um, and I would really love to see that happen more. And it is happening to a certain level, but I would like to see more and more of that. I think here. that's really true. I think they really honour the process because mm. um, like the OMDC in Canada, Ontario Media Fund, the CMF, they they have like uh, distinctive kind of development funding and then production funding. Mm. Um and it's so it's so key to the success of your project. Yeah. yeah, which I know we have here. We have development funds available to producers. I do think though that um, that that if you're working specifically in interactive format and specifically for VR, you should be considering that development money to go to prototype work, mm-hmm. right? Which means that how are you going to fund your script development? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And just just beyond that as well, you know, as I said, my experience was it started in sort of the branded space, you know. Um, um, so this is a documentary convention, but certainly for people that just want to to get some wins and just to, to actually make some stuff that's funded fairly quickly, you know, you can align with uh, ad agencies or brands and pitch them in ideas for VR VR projects, and that that is a way that people can get funds to to make things. And then, you know, as is, was our case, you make a bit of money in the branded space, and then it allows you the ability to self fund the sort of more personal projects that might seem a little bit more risky. Uh, for example, Orbital Vanitas is pretty much just six minutes inside a floating skull in space. And, um, you know, it's kind of a hard, you know, to get Coke to want to sponsor something like that. <laughs> but uh, we wouldn't want to anyway. So um, we were going to talk about international. I think we've sort of covered international. Are you happy for it to move on? Have you got some, do you want to talk a little bit more about international finance? I would say, yeah. I, want, I just wanted to mention to you that, um, that in terms of financing your projects internationally, um, I think... One of the main financiers at the moment is the technology platforms themselves. And mm-hmm. that's where, you know, that's where you're able... To, it's obviously in their interests, right? They need 
good content, otherwise no one's going to buy their hardware. So they are investing heavily in content. Um, Do you want to name them? <laughs> name and Google. shame. Name and shame, yeah. I mean, Oculus have a lot of money to spend mm. on content. Google, via their daydream platforms, have a lot of money to spend on content. Um, HTC, also invest in content. Um, Oculus, of course, are across the Rift and across Gear VR. So, you know, each of these companies has a different, slightly different strategy in what they're wanting to push people towards. So you might find you know, that they're pushing their mobile platform, for example, because they want that to kind of grow and more content to live there. But I think that that is a good place to be to be thinking about raising your finance. Um, and I think particularly for non-gaming um, stories at the moment, uh, I think they see the game industry as really kind of chugging along and, and, you know, it's kind of an easy, it's an easy yes, right? So people are making content, people are selling content, consumers are buying content, all those kind of mechanisms are sort of established you know steam has been going for a long time before vr and people buy games there now they buy vr games there nothing's really changed um but for for content that's not games that's where the tech companies are interested in kind of fostering the relationships so i think it's a great opportunity at the moment to um to work with them and and you know and we've been involved with projects with Google and Oculus um, supporting them. So it's it's definitely possible. And I think that brings us to a really interesting point, which was um, even two years ago, you'd only see VR projects really at kind of Tribeca and ITFA and Sheffield. Mm. Um, and over the last couple of years, like the price point for these headsets has come way down. Yeah. So you have kind of, you know, Google Cardboard, which you probably all know about, and, um, and gear and so on. So they're becoming, it's moving into the realm of like being more consumer friendly which opens up the database massively, which mm. means they have a huge demand for content. Yeah, and they're trying so. to push people to their stores. Yeah, right? exactly. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. so it's definitely a smart way to go. Yeah, mm. there is a real challenge in the, the industry faces, which is a chicken and egg, which is, you know, uh, to grow the industry we need more content, but the people that are funding the content are concerned about the distribution and not having enough people that can mm. then uh, engage with it and also you know people expect content for free and we know everything can't be for free and it's like how do you then charge for it and we'll talk about commercialization in a second um but uh, just a little bit of uh, uh some some stuff i picked up just coming back from sundance just just last uh, just in january uh we did meetings in los angeles at a number of vr studios over there including jaunt which is a is a good one and to to, to check out and and you know these guys are these companies are making money off off producing content right but they're looking for ideas they're, they're heavily looking for ideas and ip and and just like um a larger larger production company let's say a central media um uh, or or um, matchbox would be open to indie producers approaching them mm. with ideas for television series short form series and then using the 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 power or the might of that larger production company to help uh, get it get it funded. So too are the VR companies. And if you look for the larger VR companies, I'll just say again, Jaunt as an example. You know they are, they are very open to taking to taking ideas. Uh, and for VR series um, mm-hmm. is is what everyone's talking about at Sundance. They 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 they, they realise that yes, we can make great short form content which brings someone to the platform. But what they want is sticky stuff that makes people keep coming back. So I think that to me is, is a tremendous opportunity for people in this room to be thinking not only that for the one-off uh, experiences, but then how do you how do you get keep people coming back? Um, just touching then on on commercialization, you know, 
this is a business. We, they call it a VR industry. We saw a sexy stat earlier on saying it's going to be worth $100 squajillion or whatever recently. <laughs> no one knows. I've seen that stat change a lot. But it is obviously everyone's saying it's a growth industry. And, and I believe it is because every time I put a headset on someone, uh, the reaction is pretty similar, which is like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? And when I see that, I think, okay, if, if only 1% of the world has actually even tried VR, imagine what the potential is. And uh, to be honest, I, I think it's probably less than 1% of the world's population has tried VR now. So, you know, fast forward, there's, there's a tremendous opportunity. But guys, is, is it possible in 2017 to, to, to make money from VR? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise Any we're tips? in real trouble. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it is. I think the commercialisation opportunities are, are, are there at the moment. The markets are they're developing, but they're already there. Consumers are buying content, right? People are paying for content. A lot of our work has been commission-based, so that the stuff with the BBC was was um, was sort of similar to your commission-based TV models, you know. Um, but if you go into the storefronts and you look at people who are, and obviously we, we're not distributing those projects for, um, for any... Uh, we're not selling them because the BBC is a public broadcaster and it is all for your viewing pleasure for free. <laughs> um, but if you go into the storefronts and you look at the kind of price points that people are selling content for, I mean, it is quite, it is quite surprising at the moment how high the, the price points are. I think mm. I've been kind of, you know, I was expecting, you know, a couple of years ago for, pe- for, the, for the, the market to settle in the kind of that, I don't know, I was expecting sort of almost the app range um, a little bit higher than that. And you go into the Oculus store and you will find projects there for $40, $60, and that's direct-to-consumer one download. Mm -hmm. So I think there are definitely um, direct-to-consumer commercial revenues that you can be looking for, um, which is, you know, obviously the long tail that you want Mm -hmm. for your project to keep generating money. Um. Yeah, I think as as we said earlier, like the demand for content is there because mm. of these, you know, the the gear now is more consumer friendly. Um, I think it's interesting to watch in Sydney, like companies like Jungle, you know, like a big advertising company, then opening up a <coughs> VR division. Um, so huge capacity for uh, branded content, branded, yeah, and education as well. I think is is a huge, you know, scope to grow. Yeah, um, I would say that that. That yeah, advertising dollar is probably going to become quite significant. Mm. You know, we don't, hopefully are not going to enter a world where we have ads everywhere in a virtual mm-hmm. environment. Let's let's enjoy it while it's not like that. But, um, <laughs> and maybe it's our job to kind of shape how that that all um, plays out and try yeah. and do it in a more subtle and uh, and um, and ethical way. But uh, but yes, I think branded content is going to be a good way for producers to make money. Yeah, and for us, um, Orbital Vanitas was. Um, was acquired non-exclusively by the New York Times um, as t- to, to, to be housed on their NYT VR app, which if you want to watch it, you can now. Um, it's available now. Um, but it, that was non-exclusive. They paid us a fee for that. So I'm just giving you some examples of some commercialization. Uh, it was not substantial, but it was better than mm. nothing. Um, but because it's not exclusive, it's in the marketplace now. And, and having uh, having had meetings at Sundance and as well as in Los Angeles and San Fran after the festival, we've been approached by numerous um, distribution platforms, um, like you're saying, some of the storefronts and some other ones I've never even heard of, um, <laughs> offering us money to, to distribute it. Um, and then a, a rev share model as well. Uh, which is interesting. So, you know, we're, we're very much, you know, this is all evolving uh, and it changes all the time. So there's no really one size fits all. 
but you know the demand is the demand is there for content i think uh and it's 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 repeated in most conversations i have with with people at the big players you know there is a demand for content um the 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 market is growing and it's up to to people like us to to keep trying to to shape and make stuff that the audience wants you know and is is interesting um and how that money appears is is uh, and how that then becomes a commercial uh, conversation is is again is shifting and evolving um but certainly, sorry, certainly looking for brand integration as well as is another is another model. And Jaunt does that. So you'll come up with an idea, you'll pitch it to Jaunt. They'll say, "Look, I th- we think we can sell this." They'll they'll take that idea, then they'll go out there look for sponsors. Let's say Lexus or something, uh, which they actually partnered with recently to create a, a, a non sorry a fiction series called Invisible, which is sponsored by Lexus. You know, so that's another another path. I was also going to say that um, as well as um, your direct-to-consumer and your distributor money, um, one kind of distribution that we haven't kind of mentioned here but I think was mentioned earlier on today is um, the arcades. And we actually get quite a lot of inquiries from both VR cinemas that are springing up around the world um, and VR arcades. And, you know, the differentiation between cinema and arcade is probably just in a language thing um, because they're spaces where people can physically go. They might not have the equipment at home, but they can physically go there and experience works. And so they are – it's a lot of those um, springing up in Europe and um, we've noticed the the uptick in in requests for content to screen for a fee – or for a revenue share model um, at these things is um, is really growing. So yeah, uh, that's another that's just another pathway that you can follow in terms of looking for a, a longer tail and financing your your project. And um, just before we move to the next point, I just wanted to add that um, if you are wanting to uh, push your content direct to consumers, the way to you know one of the steps to take is to create an app. Um, obviously, and I think again in the previous session it was mentioned, you know what platform you build that app for is specific. So you have to create for iOS or for Android, but you create that app which can be anywhere from 30k up, and then um, then you need to to uh, inter, you know reach out to Samsung or Oculus on the Samsung Gear VR and form a relationship to try and get your app there. But once your app's there, it doesn't mean it's going to be published. It's not going to be put to the front of the queue as well to be promoted so that it, it, even though it, 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 the challenge is still to get that strong direct to consumer market interface um, which puts your content right in front of your your viewer which is a challenge that's still being worked out and again partnering with uh, bigger companies helps in that regard yeah apps are a great idea if you want people to kind of hub through your through your brand in order mm. to receive a variety of different maybe you've you've produced five projects and you want everyone to go to back to that one kind of central hub in order to get to your five. Um, doesn't mean that you can't just distribute your project um, on the the storefront on the Oculus store as a, as a standalone. You wouldn't need to spend your thirty thousand dollars on on creating a bespoke app in order to get it there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's uh, let's put it, bring it back to story. Um, I know we talked a lot about story before, but what do you guys see as as uh, makers in the VR space? What do you see as the opportunity that VR poses for documentary that perhaps wasn't there before the the medium became uh, used by artists and creators? I think it's a chance to go really deep. Like with our film, it's a chance for people to our film centers around the split second decision that this kid makes to save an enemy and he should hate this guy because his parents and the grandparents have hated the Iraqis kind of thing. And I think um, 
I mean, I hate the term empathy machine, <laughs> but I, you do hear that a lot. But it, it's like you put on these goggles and uh, our brains are really easily tricked. And so with what we're exploring in our film, um, we challenge your own um, idea of what social profiling is. You know, if you were pushed into a certain situation. And so VR puts you in that place in a way that sitting back and watching a film... Um, I mean, you can still empathise, obviously, with the screen, but I think it, it becomes more of a whole body sort of thing. Mm. Um, so, so for me, I'm really interested in the idea of legacy and people talk about films afterwards and we obviously have, like, we're living in this great era of like social impact producing. But I think with VR, it, it's, um, it just goes so much deeper, you know, so it can really allow you to kind of um, sink into some of those themes, yeah, and make people really think. So that's what I find really exciting about it. Can I ask you, Katie, the same question, but also just at the BBC, obviously, they're very much known as for their faction producing. What was their reason for wanting to do it, do you think? Um, I'll answer, I just want to speak to what Melanie said as well before Please. I answer why the Please. BBC was interested. Um, I, I would echo what you had to have to say and just say that I think that documentary in the virtual reality kind of ecosystem is is very important both for the makers because I think, and especially interactive documentary, because I think we have this opportunity to to we've got a we've got an environment that has agency inbuilt into it. We've got an environment where we're creating situations where the user is having an effect on the world, so their actions have consequences. And I think you know when we when we rem- think about the kind of political situation and the world that we're living in today, that idea of telling stories where individuals have consequences for their actions is super exciting as mm. as documentary practitioners and we can really exploit that. Um, I also think that for for the document for the for the virtual reality kind of medium, documentary is very important, right? The the whole technology sort of launched with this slight image problem, right? It had um, you know, you, you Google a picture of VR and you used to get like, you know, a guy with a plastic box on his face and he's got a beard and he's white and you know, like he's doing ah, he's doing some stupid, you know, sort of facial expression. You know, that there was kind of this image problem of it being a little bit exclusive, expensive, um, linked to, you know, it was a male dominated field, um, it wasn't accessible. The stories we were able to tell were not gonna be able to um, be created by people without access to this very expensive and very kind of um, specific equipment. Um, so I think the documentary and, and one of the reasons why, uh, I don't know one of the reasons, but what I would read into some of these platforms supporting documentary work is that is that it does allow for this other conversation, right? It, it takes it away from a pure gaming conversation. It allows you to have this broader social impact. Mm. How can we tell stories that are meaningful? How can we tell stories that are diverse and accessible? And how can we, you know, generate empathy? Although mm. I agree with you, I hate that. And I think it's marketing spin. Mm. But, um, but yeah, how can, it does kind of feed back into that. So it makes the platform broader. So I think so I think documentary itself is a super, super important thing for virtual reality from both ends of the spectrum. Now, to go back to why the BBC was interested in VR, I think, I mean, they saw their role and see their role as um, as a public broadcaster, as being able to look 10 years into the future and, um, and still be able to be producing work that is super relevant for, you know, for the general public. And they obviously saw this platform... Um, and they've they've had their eye on it for a very long time, but they saw that the time was right for the for them to be able to spend public money 
um, and create work that was going to be able to be distributed to the public. And we had to be really inventive in how we did that because we, you know, finished this project in 2016. Um, we had it in the National Theatre. We had it in the Imperial War Museum just because we thought, oh, you know, like, there's not enough headsets out there. Let's put it in places where people can go and see it. Um, so, yeah, I think... They saw it as part of their remit was to get involved and, of course, they have a huge R&D division which is constantly looking at, you know, new technologies um, and, you know, you know, creating standards. That's kind of what they do um, as part of R&D. So that was – that all fed together. Okay, makes sense. Um, guys, in about five minutes we're going to jump to some Q&A before uh, closing up the session at half past. Um, before we do that, let's just have a little think about what you want to ask and then um, before we do that, I just want to ask – Melanie, in terms of um, the VR experience uh, that you did, it was in the doc in the documentary sphere. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, the stuff Vertov's doing, uh, the stuff we've seen, is is in the sort of VFX animated. Mm-hmm. Did you find that there was any challenges uh, or any learnings that you had um, doing a live action uh, documentary? Oh, it's completely different. Yeah, lots of challenges, mm-hmm. lots of mistakes that were made. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, when you shoot documentary, you've got specific camera angles you're looking at and. With documentary, you have to become aware of the whole space, so you're going to be looking at the floor, you know, and all that sort of thing. So in terms of the shooting style, it's a huge learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, um, it's very much, you know, you have to think about the person's point of view, you know. It's one very specific point of view. And I think that's changing as we learn more about um, shooting for documentary, VR specifically, because mm-hmm. I think before it used to be that, you know, you'd put the person in a space and they'd just be looking around, whereas now what you're seeing in a lot of projects is... Um, more, more interactivity, more sort of consideration of how those plot points are going to fold out and how the characters within the VR space are going to interact with, you mm. know, you, the viewer sort of thing. Mm. Um, yeah, it yeah. certainly is um, It certainly is something that you, you need to take to think about and take into consideration early on. Again, with Stormrider, our VR documentary with SBS, you know, we're, they're already engaging us with meetings and term, uh, talking and asking us, like, how what's the role of the viewer? Will this be interactive? You know, because documentary in its very nature is documenting something that happens. So interactivity is almost like, uh, you know, an oxymoron in terms of a, a documentary, but it, actually it's not. And there's been lots of examples where, you know, interactivity just adds another d- layer of dimension. But then every story and every creative work is is different. And um, and so, you know, we're, we're going through that now in terms of like what the role of of, of of the viewer is in the experience. If it's a passive one, then fine. But what is, how are they seeing this unfold? You know, uh, because again, as was mentioned earlier, it can be a very manipulative mm-hmm. forum. You know, we, we have got people in a headset where the world is, is falls away from them and that we have them um, and we can, we can make them feel things very deeply. So it can be used for, for good or for, you know, for bad, um, hopefully good more than, more than not. But uh, documentary and VR is, is uh, live action is, is very is very um, is very different and, and uh, the main subject of our film Stormrider you know we've we've really engaged her a lot in terms of what we're doing you know and and how we're making it and and just to make and showing her a lot of VR just to get make sure that she's she knows what she's getting herself in for because um, you know it, it, it's such an important thing and it's a very different thing um, than just your standard 2d documentary can I just ask, just before we move to questions, have you guys ever um, cried in VR or had a really intense emotional experience? <laughs> I felt very intimidated. I was in a, a riot VR situation mm. um, and uh, there was a guy in a car coming to – and, yeah, I felt it. Mm. <laughs> very gullible, I think, but, yeah, yeah. Mm. So I, I was 
I just was so impressed by how easily um, my brain, <laughs> you know, yeah. went into that space and, mm. and felt it. So, yeah, I think it's got great capacity to to be very emotive. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I, I, I think it does. And I think that at, at the heart of all that is always telling a great story, you know. It, it does have this this capacity to, to to tap into these kind of different, maybe different parts of your brain that mm. you might be, that, that you might not be getting switched on quite so much when you're consuming other types of media or getting switched on in a different way. So I think there's that, but uh, but at the heart of it, you know, if you've got a, a compelling story, I think it's going to draw people in regardless of the platform that you're mm, kind of absolutely. working on. So yeah. um, so it's, it's, you know, I kind of I always want to come back to, if you've got it's story first, it's still story first. You know, it's that the platform has its own affordances, and we should definitely think about those. But, but you've got to have a killer story. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of, you know, virtual reality and, and actually producing the documentary and the live action, you have to remember that everyone isn't you, when you're shooting 360, everyone's in the shot. So that it, it lends itself to a more hands-off style of observational documentary, at least stuff that we're looking at doing, it does because you know, we physically shouldn't be in that space unless, you know, if we're capturing a reality that doesn't include us in it, even though it does. So there's all these sorts of different, um, you know, uh, things you need to consider when, when making a VR documentary. So, um, look, guys, I just wanted to open up to the floor, give you guys a chance to ask some questions. Um, how do we do that? We've got microphones. Can I see a gentleman in the middle there? Got his hand straight up. You just touched on what I was looking for. How do you shoot virtual reality as a, as a live action documentary? And are there some examples we can see? Sure. Um, we, not, not, not examples, unfortunately, because right. we haven't prepped examples um, of that today. Having said that, do you want to? Does anyone want to talk about? Have you you've, you've had experience shooting live action? Do you want to talk about how you? Yeah, shoot well, it? you started. What, what I suppose what was most interesting for me to begin with was um, the scripting process. So it's obviously not just one narrative script. It's you've got to think of different you know scenarios. And at first, I found that completely overwhelming sort of thing. Um, and then yeah, it's thinking about the space. So it's um, as Katie was showing us, she. When she was prototyping, she was mapping out those key spaces, kind of thing. So it's it's thinking about the different scenarios that will unfold. You know, if you're in an interior in each room, what are you going to see? Um, whereas if you're shooting a documentary, your angle, you know, unless you're on a steady cam, is going to be kind of more fixed. Um, so I suppose you're thinking about the space in more of a 360 kind of degree way. Definitely, and, and uh, you know, one of the things that we do is storyboard from a bird's eye view point of view. So if you think about it, you you know instead of the it being a frame, you, you don't have the luxury of a frame anymore. You, so when storyboarding, just a frame, we actually do still storyboard with single frames like you would a normal film. But then we look on top and we say, right, where's everything going to be positioned? And it's very much more choreographed like a theatre piece, um, if you can imagine. Um, and the viewer, it's, it's in the in the round, I guess you could say. Um, just simply uh, the rudimentaries cameras uh, and I guess everyone has different levels of experience but uh, you you have a, an array of cameras all pointed in different position uh, different directions and then those shoot uh, you know synced up you know anything from two to six to eight to 30 cameras in different directions and then that gets stitched together outputted uh, and then stitched together and then when it's exported into the to the headset you it has the feeling of, of, of having a 360 environment. Um, there's a number of different 
protocols, I guess you could say best practices in terms of, of camera movement uh, so as to not feel, uh, to make the, the person feel nauseous unless you want to in the, mm-hmm. in the case of a, a roller coaster uh, ride or something. Um, but definitely not limiting the amount of movement uh, or just having a slow, steady movement is, 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 is pretty good, a pretty good start. And can I also add as well a good resource for you if you're looking into people who have thought about these questions um, is to look up Jessica Brillhart, who is the principal um, filmmaker for VR at Google. She has written a lot about this exact topic and if you look her up, you'll find her articles um, and you'll find her talks. She talks about, you know, about how to direct for attention, how to, um, how to edit. She's, she's, she's a great resource. So, yeah, look up Jessica Brillhart. Rico Theta. It's a camera by a brand called, it's, it's a company called Rico, R-I-C-O-H, and the, the product is the Theta, T-H-E-T-A. You can also look for a Samsung Gear 360, which is about 500 bucks. Uh, question over there with the mic. Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Patrick Hurley. I'm here representing Sheffield DocFest, which a few of the panelists have mentioned has been a sort of leading launch pad for VR projects. Um, less of a question, and just given the nature of the subject of today's session, I just wanted to flag uh, very quickly to the people in the room our uh, alternate realities marketplace. Um, the alternate realities market invites um, submissions of ideas for virtual reality, interactive, cross-platform stories to have meetings with decision makers and financiers. Uh, we take 25 projects to meet, uh, take about 400 meetings across the, the, the festival. Um, and last year we tracked that there were about uh, 800 pounds of, uh, sorry, 800,000 pounds of financing and investment and also sales and distribution partnerships for VR works. So I just really wanted to quickly flag, particularly to the, to the room now, that the deadline for this is 16th of March. So it's really soon. So we wanted to invite um, creators to, to consider this option and, and you know, come, to, come to Sheffield for the, for the marketplace and financing opportunities. Um, I'll stick around outside after if anyone wants to ask any questions, but I just thought this was sort of too, too, too appropriate a forum to not mention this deadline quite soon. Thanks. <laughs> no worries. He's, he's not a paid sponsor, but uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. Um, unfortunately, guys, I've just got a big card, which is stop. And um, <laughs> so just to let you know, we're going to be down having VR networking drinks at the Acme Bar and Cafe, and we can definitely continue the conversation uh, at that stage, also been asked uh, to ask everyone to please uh, uh, leave fairly smartly after the uh, conclusion, just because they need to prep the room for the next uh, session. But thank you very much, uh, Katie, and thank you very much, Mel, for 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 being part of this. And uh, hope to chat to you soon. Cheers. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com/acmeonline or the Acme website.